0: Baseball took his sight, but gave him a life. That's what Ed Lucas says about the sport. In a book he penned with his son Christopher called Seeing Home, The Ed Lucas Story, A Blind Broadcaster's Story of Overcoming Life's Greatest Obstacles. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Ed Lucas might not be as familiar a name in baseball history as Babe Ruth and Joe DiMaggio, but his story is no less remarkable. Ed and his son Christopher join me in the studio. Hello, Ed. Good morning. And hello, Christopher. How are you? Can I call you Chris? Oh, Chris is good, thank you. All right. Every story has a beginning, so I want to start at the beginning, Ed. Where were you born?
1: I was born in Jersey City, New Jersey. Now, you weren't born blind,
0: but you were born visually compromised, right?
1: Yes. Um, I had to wear uh, heavy glasses, but I uh, was able to do everything like anybody else with the glasses. And on October the 3rd, 1951, at the Bobby Thompson hit the shot hard around the world, and the Giants won the pennant, I ran outside, very excited to play ball, and uh, took my glasses off, put them in my back pocket, thought I could see better without them, threw a pitch, and the line drive came back and hit me between the eyes, and that was the last thing I ever saw.
0: So because your eyes were already compromised, you were at risk that if something like that happened, you could go blind, and in fact, you did. Absolutely. Doctors were hopeful, though, initially, that they could restore your sight, right?
1: Yes. uh, They were trying everything, and it was a a detached retina, which uh, was very hard to even uh, correct at that time. Today, it's a little better. They put buckles in your eyes, but uh, years ago, uh, detached retina was almost impossible to to, uh, take care of.
0: Talk about selfless parents. Your mom and your dad were willing to each donate one of their eyes so you could see.
1: That's right. They went to my eye doctor and said we each would like to have one of our eyes cut out and given to Ed so he can see again. And unfortunately, medically, you cannot do that even today.
0: Chris, did you have an opportunity to know your grandparents growing up?
2: Oh, I did, definitely. My my grandmother lived till 1998, so I knew her a lot longer than my grandfather. But uh, I, I only heard that story a few years ago, and I mean— I was as blown away as everybody else would be. But I mean, that's the kind of love as a parent that goes above and beyond what parents are expected of.
0: Your parents were also people of very deep faith, right, Ed?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: They prayed a lot to the saints for you.
1: Yes, they. Um, after I uh, lost my uh, sight, they decided to say the family rosary every uh, every evening. We knelt down after supper and we said the family rosary.
0: How long after that accident did you realize you would never see again?
1: Well, I guess uh, maybe a year or so, hoping that I could uh, be able to see with all the hospitalization and everything that they did and all the tests that they did and operations and nothing worked. And I wanted to go to school, so I went to a Catholic school for the blind and uh, I started uh, learning how to do things and become independent.
0: You referenced that Catholic school. It seems that you've had many guiding lights in your life, including a nun named Sister Anthony Marie. That's correct.
1: Sister Anthony Marie was not only a teacher of a classroom, but she was our house mother, so to speak. We stayed at the school from Sunday night to Friday afternoon. And uh, when I first got there, I would walk with my hands out in front of me, making sure I didn't walk into anyone or walk into anything. And she came up to me and slapped my arm down. She said, Eddie Lucas, we walk with our hands at our side at all times. I said, but sister, I'm blind. I can't see where I'm going. She said, it's not a shame. You're like everybody else here. So you better pick up your oar and start rowing. And uh, she gave me that little push and made sure that I could do things and learn how to do things on my own.
0: I'm not sure if it was the same sister, but there's another story involving galoshes that taught your dad a lesson, right,
1: about your blindness? Right. That that was Sister Rose Magdalene. Uh, it was a Friday afternoon. We, as I said, we stayed there from Sunday night till Friday afternoon. One Friday afternoon, there was um, about 12 inches of snow on the ground. I expected more. And my father came in and he said, Ed, uh, I have your galoshes. I'll help you put them on. You stand up against the wall. You put your foot out and I'll kneel down here and I'll push one way, you push it the other way. And as we were doing that, Sister Rose Magdalene walked off the elevator and saw my father on his knees and I'm pushing my foot and she goes, Mr. Lucas, what are you doing? She said, oh, Sister, said, I don't know if you know it's snowing am 12, 12 inches of snow and even more coming... So I'm helping Ed put on his galoshes. And she walked up to him and gave him an elbow in the chest, pushed him back and said, he's only blind. He's not handicapped.
0: And that's your motto even till this day, right? It's not a handicap, just an inconvenience. inconvenience. Absolutely. How long did it take you to really feel that way, that it's not a handicap, just an inconvenience?
1: Uh, I guess a while. I went on to high school and I found out that Many of the blind students in the New York Institute for the Blind here in the Bronx, that they love baseball, and I started a club called the Diamond Dusters and getting to know some of the players and becoming friends with them. I brought them up to the school. We had Jackie Robinson, Winnie McDaniel, Phil Rizzuto, uh, Mickey Mantle, and many others that came up, and I interviewed them, and I just felt like I was accomplishing something then. And that was my dream, to do something in baseball.
0: Chris, while you were growing up, did you see your dad as handicapped, or was that really something that you didn't even you know, realize as a kid because he lived by this motto, it's not a handicap? Sure.
2: Uh, the best way I describe it is you, you, of, you oftentimes you hear when they're interviewing people that grew up in terrible poverty, and they say, what was it like to be poor growing up? And their answer is always, we didn't know we were poor. We didn't know until we got older and people told us. So, so same thing. I didn't know that my father was Obviously, I knew he was blind, but I didn't see it as a handicap either because we we did more things than some of my friends that had fully sighted parents did. He went above and beyond, went out of his way to try to, I guess, overcompensate. So we, we didn't miss anything.
0: We're going to get to the baseball. There's no question, Ed. <laughs> so let's just hold on to that That's for okay. a moment. Mm-hmm. But I do want to talk about your story, actually, and the bond that you have as a family, because you raised your children, you divorced your first wife, D, and there was a custody battle.
1: Correct. I had them for seven years after she left. And we got divorced, and then I received a letter from a lawyer saying that she wanted custody. And we went back into the courts, and uh, the judge, without even putting me on the stand, said, uh, Mr. Locus, you have two choices. Either you uh, give your boys back to your ex-wife and her husband, or I will put them in a foster home separately where they won't see each other. He said, so you make up your mind. And, of course, I gave my boys to my ex-wife. I got myself a new lawyer. And then he went on and went to the Superior Court in New Jersey, and we had a new trial.
0: Now, that was a groundbreaking decision, right, the fact that you got custody of your kids.
1: Absolutely. It was a groundbreaking decision. I was the first disabled disabled person in the United States and first man in the United States to win custody of their children.
0: Chris, how much of that do you remember?
2: Uh, a lot of it, actually. I was uh, between 10 and 12 years old okay. in the time frame that it happened, so it was certainly you know the formative years, and it's hard enough for anybody going through something like that when your parents divorce and there's a custody issue, but to have it in the public eye like this was, this was around the same time the movie Kramer versus Kramer came out, so it was very timely, and there were lots of stories written about my father tying it to the movie and the prominence he had with the, covering the Yankees, so uh, it was sort of a... a Double exposure there as a child, you go into school and all your friends are hearing about this story and knowing about it. So obviously I'm happy the way it turned out. And it was it was quite an interesting childhood to have.
0: Now a big part of your life has been baseball, is still baseball. And you could have only talked about baseball for this book, but you talk about your personal life, you talk about your divorce to your first wife. Why do that? Why focus on the personal and not just the professional? Why delve into those private details?
2: I think if you're going to tell a story, tell the whole story. And also, you know, the thing we want to stress to people is that this book, on its surface, when you look at it because of the names involved and the Yankees and everything else, people might just say, oh, it's a book about baseball. But it's, it's not really. Baseball is maybe a third of this book, but it's just a backdrop. So there's so much more to this. It's like saying Rocky is a movie just about boxing. It's more the human story, same thing with Rudy and Unbroken, all these other things. that you know The, the backdrop is great, but the story itself about my father is the story of faith, passion, family, all these things. And if we didn't include that story, then people might say, well, where is it? Why is it people that knew us and kind of knew that? So we felt that's just as important as anything that
0: happened in Yankee Stadium. You mentioned earlier that you didn't hear the story about your grandparents willing to donate their eyes Mm. until relatively recently. How much of this story didn't you hear until you were older?
2: You know, I I thought I knew my father's whole story. And over the process of writing this, we would sit down once a week and I would focus on a particular decade or a particular time. And there were so many stories that he told me. I said, wow, uh, I'm shocked by hearing these. And I would say 80% of the stories that he shared still have not made the book. You know, the book we had to condense. So... There's a lot more out there, but it was, it was a great. I think every son or daughter should write a book with their parents because you learn so much more than you think you know. Ed, what was the
0: process like for you?
1: It was remembering and telling stories. And uh, being Irish, you always tell stories. And as a result, it was good remembering. And some of them had to jump my memory a little bit. But uh, it, it, it was great doing it.
0: Well, let's talk about baseball for a little while, right? Baseball, a big part... Of your childhood. You say that baseball took away your sight, but it also gave you your life.
1: Correct. Um, I loved the game. I loved it even after I lost my sight. And uh, meeting Mr. Rizzuto in the American shops in Newark. uh, Went up to him as a kid, and he took an interest in me right away. He said to me, uh, hey, you got some good baseball now. He's asking some questions. He said, "Uh, why don't we keep uh, in touch? I'm going to give you my phone number. And he gave me his phone number. He said, I guess you wouldn't give me yours. It's probably unlisted. But I gave him my phone number, and before I knew it, he called me up and came and started taking me out and encouraging me all the time. Make sure you study. Make sure you do this. Make sure you do that. And he would pick me up from time to time and just go for a ride, go for dinner, talk to me. And after my boys were born, he would uh, come to the house and spend time with them. And then later on, they would go out with him. and He would bring them you know, quoting that uh, he had, and he said, I have too much of this already that was donated to him, and he, he would uh, bring it for my voice.
0: You referred to him as Mr. Rizzuto. Of course, we're talking about New York Yankee Phil Rizzuto. Mr. Rizzuto, huh? Is that how you still see him?
1: <laughs> no, he's, he, he's Scooter to me. But he's Scooter. No, okay, right. That's what they tell me. Always call me Scooter.
0: That's some relationship that you formed with him, huh?
1: Yes, 56 years. He was my best friend. He was always there and always kept on encouraging me. Uh, He was my greatest public relations person, mentioning me on the air almost every day one way or another. And people got to know me, and I would walk into the press box or towards the old press box in Yankee Stadium, and uh, people would come up and ask for my autograph, and Hmm. uh, it was a very nice thing. You
0: graduated from Seton Hall University with a degree in communications, right? That's correct. One of the first blind people in the country to do so. Right. What was the search to find a job like after you graduated from college?
1: It was very, very, very difficult. Uh, I had to prove to people that, uh, hey, a blind man could do this. And I had to uh, do interviews, not get paid for it, send them to radio stations, write articles, and uh, not get paid for it. But I was determined. And then finally I got a break. And uh, during that time, many of the writers, the um, big guard, I guess you would call them, uh, they gave me the business. They felt they shouldn't be around, they shouldn't be in the clubhouse, taking up a couple of spaces with my guide, talking to them at the uh, locker, and then taking up two spaces in the press box where two sighted men could work instead of a blind guy and his guide.
0: What did you call it in the book, the Irish Whisper, or something like that?
1: <laughs> right. Well, they they were saying things to me like, um, "What's this blind guy doing here?" Enough to that I would hear it. Nobody else would hear it. and I referred to that as an Irish whisper.
0: Phil Rizzuto gave you some very solid advice on how to deal with discrimination, didn't
1: he? Yes, he did. He, uh, you know, mentioned about Jackie Robinson how he had to go through it, and he said, "Remember what I told you." I told you this years ago, and I'm going to remind you again. We were riding along. He said, I wanted to play baseball, and I tried out for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And Casey Stengel was there, and he got a hold of me, and he said, Listen, son, I don't think you're tall enough to play baseball. You're too small. He said, So I advise you go and get yourself a shoeshine box and make a living. And, uh, of course, in 1949, Casey Stengel became the manager of the Yankees, and uh, Stengel and Rizzuto didn't hit it off too well. Uh, I mean, he was polite to him, but he wasn't very fond of him after what he said. And, and in 1950, uh, he was the MVP of the American League, and 1951, the MVP of the World Series. So you were determined
0: right after college to go on to a career as a sports journalist, right? Correct. There were bumps in the road, as you mentioned. You finally got a break. I want to get to that break. But in the meantime, you also sold insurance, didn't you?
1: Yes, I did. I um, Career day at Seton Hall. Uh, I came out of a interview. I was very upset. This man grabbed my arm. He said, hey, uh, i like to talk to you. He said, my name is Freddie Keefner, and I'm with the Provident Mutual Life Insurance Company in Philadelphia. I said, yeah, so? He said, yeah, we like to hire you. I said, I don't want to sell insurance. I want to work, you know. He said, well, I see you have a dog here. He said, you ever heard of Morris Frank? I said, Yes. He's the first man I've ever to have a seeing eye dog. He said, so, well, he works for us, and he's very successful, and I think you would be good at it, too.
0: But while you were selling insurance, you were also doing interviews with players at the stadium because you had that access, thanks to Phil Rizzuto, right?
1: Absolutely. Phil Rizzuto and a fellow by the name of Jackie Farrell, who was the uh, public head of public speaking at the time for the Yankees, and he took me under his wing and had me come in. I would just call him and say, Jack, I'm coming with two people. I'm coming with three people, whatever it may be. And he would meet me at the press gate. We would go downstairs and he had me interview them and encourage me all the way.
0: So when did you get that big break? When did you finally become a sports journalist?
1: Well, I got it several times. WJLK, I was on there for a while. And then WOBM, Took my show and I did a report from the ballpark every week, and I feel that was the big break that I was allowed to do what I always wanted to do.
0: You would cover the games from the stadium, right? You would listen to the games on the radio and then talk
1: to the players, right? Exactly, and then get you know feature stories. Sometimes I would talk to them about something outside the game, maybe their family, maybe uh, something that happened during the off season to them, or maybe they had some sort of adversity that. Uh, they would like to talk about.
0: You did this for both radio and print.
1: Yes. I I was uh, working also, I did some work for InTouch Network for the Blind. Um, That's a station that most blind people listen to uh, here in New York. One day I was taking phone calls for them and a young lady called up and said, uh, Can you describe home plate? Does it look like, the dinner plate that we eat off of. <laughs> and uh, that gave me the quote uh, to start asking the ballplayers to describe things that are taken for granted.
0: Mm. So here your dad, Chris, is a VIP at Yankee <laughs> Stadium, which I guess also meant that you were a VIP at uh, Yankee I, Stadium growing up. I don't you call me a VIP, <laughs> but the son of a
2: VIP, I guess. <laughs> there are worse things to be called. But, uh, yeah, I, I in the book I used the phrase that it, it was like being on the couch of The Tonight Show, that you would... We'd be driving over from New Jersey to the game listening to Billy Joel on the radio and then get to the stadium and who's having dinner with my father but Billy Joel. So (laughs) it's kind of a surreal life to be able to go – and I would go back to school and all the – come on. You didn't have dinner with Billy Joel but – uh, it, you know, it's a great way to – I recommend it highly for everyone.
0: <laughs> what are among some of your fondest memories of your times at Yankee Stadium as a kid?
2: I, I think, you know, this uh, meeting the celebrities was fun. That was nice. But I think the fondest memories I have are just watching the way that some of these guys interacted with my father as opposed to other writers. I would see how they wouldn't talk to the other writers. And yet would turn to my father, like you mentioned the big break, Mark Fidrich was a guy who in 1976 came up and was a superstar and everybody wanted to talk to him and he decided not to talk to anyone else and yet he went to my father and said, I'm going to give you an interview. And my father could have kept that from everyone else and he would have been right to you know use it, as a, but he shared it with the others and that sort of opened doors for him as well.
0: You didn't keep it as an exclusive, huh, Ed?
1: No, he didn't tell me to. Uh, uh, another time I did, when Dave came and told me, I don't want you to give this to anyone else, and I had to go into the relations office and uh, write the story behind closed doors.
2: I think a lot of the, it was what you mentioned about what I took pride in, was seeing that, because I think a lot of these players, and even some of the celebrities, they identified with my father because they came from a similar background, having to you know, fight against all odds to get to where they are, and they see a guy who did the same thing, and You know, some of them were born into it, but some really had people telling, like Mr. Rizzuto, from the very beginning, there's no way you're going to do it. It's impossible. So
0: as a child, even as an adult, when I still go to the ballpark and watch people doing that to him, it's just amazing to see. You write in the book about the many surreal moments in your life, including the time Joe DiMaggio did play-by-play for you. He called the game for you.
1: Yes, that was a great throw. It was opening day, 1976. The new renovated Yankee Stadium. The Yankees have played in Shea Stadium for two years. We came back, and one of the media we relations guys came up. Said, "Would you mind if Joe DiMaggio sat next to you?" He said, "There's not too many seats." I said, "Sure." So he came in, and um, I was happy to see him. And we knew each other for a long time. And uh, I went into my bag, and I was taking out my earphones and my radio. He said, "What are you doing?" I said, I "Have to listen to the game and put them away." He said, "I'll do play-by-play." I said, "Really?" He said, "Yes." And he stayed the whole game. And Ford hit a home run for Minnesota off of Rudy May, and I'll never forget that call.
0: That's pretty incredible. Yes. You also talk about the time that Bob Hope taught you how to play golf.
1: Right, Bob Hope. He he was a funny guy. I met him in West Orange at a golf at a country club, and uh, he took me under his wing. We went out, and he said, uh, I'm going to show you how to swing. And I was left-handed, but, you know, he let me hit the ball a few times and uh, kidding around, telling jokes. And I I had met him four or five times at the stadium, and uh, it it was a wonderful treat treat playing uh, golf with Bob Hope. Did you ever imagine
0: that all of these doors would have opened for you way back when?
1: Not at all. Never gave it a thought at all.
0: Well, he, he's got a great
2: line in the book, which I think some of you know, baseball took his sight, but it gave him his life. Mm-hmm. You know, who knows? And I've asked him this many times. Would you be where you are now if you had continued you know, with with bad vision but certainly able to see? And uh, he always answers no, that he might have gone into banking or insurance full-time or things. So this is sort of, you know, it's God taking one thing away, as they say, closing one door but opening another for him. Mm-hmm. And now hopefully through the book he's touching many other people that – might feel they're up against all odds or their life. You know, Everyone's got challenges. His happens to be that you can see it. He's blind, but everyone's facing something, and hopefully you hear my dad's story, and you say, oh, I can do it too. If Ed Lucas can get there, so can I.
0: Today we're all about text messages and sending emails, but I want to talk about the power of letter writing because your mom, Ed, was a master at letter writing. Her Uh, letters opened doors for you.
1: Absolutely. She wrote letters and, uh, you know, to Leo DeRosa got in to meet the Giants, and he gave me a day at the Polo Grounds in 1952. Brought me into the, his uh, office in the clubhouse, and my mother had to sit on the porch in the old Polo Grounds, uh, overlooking the field. And I said to him, "Mr. DeVosha, are I be going out to meet some of the Giant ball players?" I was only 13 years old, and he said, "No, sir." My heart dropped. He said, you're my guest, and if they want to meet you, they have to come in here to my office, and if they don't, they will hear for me. And before I knew, everybody stopped marching in, Monty Irvin, Sal Magley, Jim Hearn, Alvin Dock, Don Mueller, Sal Evers, uh, so many, West Western, all the giants, Just and they came in with bottles of Coke, and after a while, it seemed like DeRoche's desk had all Coke bottles on it.
0: <laughs> These memories are so vivid for you, no question.
1: Absolutely. That's the one good thing I have in my memory. If I lose that, yeah. I'm gone.
0: <laughs> Your mom was a great letter writer. Your dad was a big lover of baseball. I guess that's where you got it from, huh?
1: Right, my mother and father both. Both uh, of them. Both of them. They, they loved it. Uh, we couldn't afford to go to too many major league games, but we went to many minor league games, the Jersey City Giants, and we went to see them play. And that's how I got to know many of the Giants that came up to New York.
0: Your parents did see you become a sports journalist, a paid sports journalist. How did that make them feel?
1: That made them feel wonderful. Um, you know, they they were very proud, and uh, they helped me fight the fight, so to speak. And uh, they they were you know determined to be behind me all the way, and they were very happy to see it.
0: You are also in the New Jersey Sports Writers Association Hall of Fame, as well as the Irish American Baseball Hall of Fame.
1: That's correct.
0: These are huge accomplishments. Thank you. What was that like when you received those induction announcements?
1: Uh, I I was overwhelmed at first and thrilled uh, to be honored to go into these Hall of Fames. And I knew many people in them, and then to include me was uh, a thrill.
0: Chris, I would imagine the family was enormously elated by all of this. Oh, sure. I mean, especially for the Irish-American one because, you know, we're,
2: we're 100% Irish-American. And uh, that particular Hall of Fame, it's actually in Manhattan. It's at Foley's on 33rd Street. And Fordham's own Vince Scully is in there and uh, a bunch of other great irish But, you know, it's a lot of people when they think of baseball usually think of the great Italian names like DiMaggio and Rizzuto. And now there's a lot of players from Latin America and the great African-American. But the Irish players you don't hear much about. So... Uh, this is a whole museum dedicated. So for him to be inducted into that, and he's one of the first classes that went in, it's just, uh, again, for an Irish family, couldn't get any prouder than
0: that. Does the entire family root for the Yankees? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. 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 no my, huh? my brother is a Mets fan. I think is he's adopted. Right? I'm not sure what happened there. But. <laughs> That's acceptable, Ed?
1: <laughs> oh, sure. You know, he's, a, and um, my one grandson's a Mets fan. His whole family, my, Eddie's whole family is Mets fans.
2: Wow. He's like the friar negotiating between the Montagues and the Capulets, (laughs) keeping us you know, well-balanced. Okay,
0: okay. Well, your wife is in the studio with us, Allison, your second wife, and you two got married, the only couple ever to get married at home plate at Yankee Stadium.
1: That's correct. How did that happen? Well, I made a request to Rick Cerrone, who was the media relations director of the Yankees at the time, uh, through his office. And He called me up and he said, Ed, you made this request? It's you, right? I said, it's me. He said, "Um, I want you to call Gina, and she's in charge of special events outside of baseball. Call her up and talk to her. I called her up. She said, you have to come in here and talk to us. I have to meet you. We went in, and she said that she was told when she got the job, never, never allow anyone to be married at home plate. When she got the note from Mr. Steinbrenner, she called him up. She said, are you sure about this? You tell me. He said, yes. Ed is a part of our family. And if this is what he wants, this is what we're going to do for him. And on March 10th, 2006, they had the field dressed as if it was opening day. They're bunting up. Everything looked beautiful. They had chairs from one dugout to the other dugout for all my guests. And they had on the scoreboard, congratulations, Allison and Ed, on your special day. We had a friend of mine who was from the Phantom of the Opera. He sang at the wedding, and uh, it was just a wonderful thing. And then we had a reception upstairs in the Yankee Club, and Mr. Steinbener paid for the entire thing.
0: Unbelievable. Chris, what was that day like?
2: It was – people always ask me, what's your greatest memory from Yankee Stadium? That's it. That's, you know, that goes beyond – that trumps anything that could have happened in baseball. And, uh, you know, Mr. Steinbrenner's kindness, one of the things when he passed away, I think it was 2010 – People started talking about what a great man he was as a philanthropist and all that. In his life, he kept that hidden. He didn't want anybody to know that. And you mentioned my grandmother. Did they see the success of my father? One of my favorite memories, and it's in the book, was at one of the World Series. You know, October, it's very cold. I was out in the stands with my grandmother and my brother and myself, and it was freezing. And Mr. Steinbrenner saw us from his box. And recognized my father's mother, and said, "Get those, guys, get them inside where it's nice and warm." Brought it, no fanfare, or anything. Just sent somebody down, brought us into a suite where it was nice and warm. And so she got to see how the owner of the Yankees, you know, the man of this team mm-hmm. that he idolized growing up, how he became part of the family. So again, I, there's nothing you could say about Mr. Steinbrenner that that is wrong in my book.
0: Whatever you think of the team or how yeah, he led sure, the team, sure. right?
2: You know, everybody's got their good side and bad side, and he wanted to win. That's great. But what, like I said, what's not reported is, he, he, and I would watch this happen, he would pick up the Daily News or the Times or something, read about a family in the Bronx whose house burned down, they had seven kids, and he would say, send them a check for $50,000 without his name on it, without any publicity, and he would do that every single day. So that was the kind of guy he was.
0: I understand that this story, the Ed Lucas story,
2: has caught the eye of Hollywood. It has. It's it's been in development for even before the book came along, and uh, thankfully the book is making the process move a lot faster. So hopefully, 2016, 2017, sixteen, two thousand seventeen, you'll see it in theaters. And we're not allowed to say who's playing. There's a lot of A-list names involved. Not uh, Bradley you, Cooper. Well, was I was going to give names. you. So you blew my, I was going to say <laughs> it rhymes with Bradley Looper is what I've been saying. But yeah, yes, Mr. Cooper has expressed great interest. He's in London now doing the Elephant Man. So. Uh, If the stars align, you know, Hollywood, everything moves a little bit slower than the publishing industry. So we're still waiting for a director and a bunch of other stuff to line up. But, yes, hopefully by 2016 or 17, you'll see the Ed Lucas story starring Bradley Cooper in theaters.
0: Well, I very much enjoyed the book. I walked away feeling inspired. Ed, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having us. Chris, thank you. Thank you. Ed and Chris Lucas wrote Seeing Home, The Ed Lucas Story, a blind broadcaster's story of overcoming life's greatest obstacles. It's out now from Jeter Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter for show updates since New York City Tidbits. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Taylor Nolk and Claire Drake. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery
2: starts here.